Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Too Smart for This. It's your host, Alexis Barber. I am so excited for this week's episode. You guys have no idea. This is such a full circle, cool moment for me because today we are interviewing KJ Miller. KJ is the founder of Mented Cosmetics, which is a beauty line that I have loved and used for such a long time. We talk a little bit more about how I discovered KJ, etc. in the episode, but she is also the host of a new podcast called Not Another Business Podcast. It's really cool and a great listen if you're someone interested in business. If you like our show, you're going to like theirs. So make sure you give that a listen if you like this episode or like hearing from KJ. She is a graduate of Harvard and Harvard Business School, so it was so cool to talk to her about about her experience at business school before I headed off to Wharton. This was such a cool, amazing experience, and I can't wait for you to hear more from her. She has so much knowledge. She built a company in a really cool time, and I'm really excited for you all to hear the advice that she has for young founders and gets to hear a little bit more about how being yourself in this in, in whatever industry you're in can pay off for you in the long run. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with KJ. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk to you. I must say, I found out who you were, like obviously before, like when you launched Mented Cosmetics, it was very in the girl boss era of founders <laughs> and you know seeing there was women. a whole era there yes. was an era so I feel like um but when I really heard more about your business story was the Sarah Blakely masterclass, which yeah. was crazy yeah. yeah and what's so funny about that is that opportunity came about out of the blue really like someone from her team just reached out to me actually I think someone from the masterclass team reached out to me and they were like, and at first they didn't want to say who it was with. Mm-hmm. They're like, we have someone who's doing a masterclass, who's you know an amazing female entrepreneur and she's looking for people who she can do like live um, sessions with, like little workshops with for the masterclass. Are you interested? And so I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be Sarah Blakely at first. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, that sounds cool. Cause they're like, we're going to fly you out oh my God. you know, to Georgia. We're going to, and I was like a yeah, free trip. Like why not? And then it wasn't until I essentially sort of signed on that they told me it was Sarah Blakely. I was like, are you oh my God. kidding? I was like, <laughs> oh, it was it was amazing to meet her. She's obviously just such an inspiration. So yes. yeah, that was a cool opportunity. Oh my gosh, such a cool opportunity. And I think she just got on TikTok too, which is fun. I'm yeah. excited about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, what a star. What a star. Okay. So as you know, I'd love to start off with some rapid fire questions. Yes. So first of all, are you an astrology person? I'm not. Not at all. Not at all. A lot of my team know. is. And so yeah. they try to get me into it and I'm just like I appreciate it but no I don't know (laughs) do you have any personality tests that you like like to refer to um I guess I mean I've done a few of them I've done the sort of standard Myers-Briggs I think I'm a protagonist I think is sort of like what I'm called but not not ones that I tend to refer to like I do it when it when the situation calls for it like I'll take my team through it whatever Mm Um, but no, it's not something I tend to refer to all that I often. I see, I yeah. see. Okay, then we shall move on to okay. what is your hometown and where do you live now? My hometown is Columbus, Ohio, and now I live in Philadelphia. Wow, a Midwestern girl. I am. I love to see it. Me too. And I'm going to be a Philly resident too. I know, I'm excited. I'm excited too. You're the only person I know there, so <laughs> it'll be a good time. Instagram or TikTok? Ooh, TikTok for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Elaborate for me. So it's so funny. I'm not, I'm clearly not an influencer. However, on TikTok, I have almost at this point 30,000 followers, whereas on Instagram, I have like 4,000. And I think the reason why is because TikTok as a channel just felt 
so much easier and authentic to me to just be able to post anything, mm. right? So yes, I've posted beauty videos, of course, or plenty of makeup videos, but I also post like, if I do my nails, I might say like, here's how I do my press on nails, mm. or I might do a video on just like whatever business topic. And yeah. but it, But it won't be like polished. I won't always be like, full face of glam. In fact, in a lot of my videos, I'm in my pajamas, mm. no makeup. And those videos still do well. And so I feel like TikTok just feels a little more authentic to me. Yes. And as a as a result, like I've been able to grow that channel. Yes, I've put effort into it. It's not like it just happened. I did have to put effort into it, but it felt like effort that worked for me. Whereas I like that. whenever I saw people growing Instagram, I was like, this looks like a production. And I don't have it. Right? Yeah. It <laughs> like, is really a production. I think that's what has been frustrating me recently is like, I looked great in this outfit, but like, I can't always get the right lighting when I'm out at an event to do. It's like a whole separate job. You yeah. gotta spend like hours really doing well on Instagram. So yeah. I agree with you in there. Okay, so sweet or savory? Savory for sure. Same, same. Lipstick or lip gloss? Gloss, yeah. Mm. I mean, we launched with lipstick. That was our first product. And so I'm always gonna love our lipsticks, but I'm a gloss girl. Yes. Yeah. Okay, period. Liquid or cream for your face? Cream. Mm -hmm. Skin by Minted is a foundation stick, a cream foundation stick. Which you just used. Which just I used, just used to touch up. Yeah. It's so great for travel. It's just such a beautiful skin-like finish. And I actually, before we launched our foundation, I had never really used a cream product um, I'd only ever used liquids and one of my pet peeves with liquid was just like the mess of it Ugh. like pouring it on my hand and then sort of I like just using realized it. that I have some right yeah <laughs> like it just it sort of was a pet peeve so when we started the development process I remember I was like I really want to do a stick and there are a lot of people particularly in the beauty industry who were like that's not what you should do because liquid outsells outsells stick by you know i think you've talked about this on yeah TikTok. like yeah. by a thousand right and i was like yeah but i just really think this is what's right not just for me but like for our customer like our customer she is like an easy breezy gal she is someone who wants to do her makeup in five minutes she doesn't want to have to think about it a lot and to me a stick lets you do that it's so simple you place it exactly where you want it if you only want a little that's fine if you just want to cover up a blemish that's fine it's easy peasy liquid to me just feels a little bit more advanced. And I think that's fine too. I'm sure Minted will do a liquid in the future. But for our first foundation, it's what a stick made more sense. And you know, a stick is cream. So now I love now I love yeah. cream foundation. I'm glad and it looks your skin looks incredible. Thank so you. I love it. I'll be purchasing. Okay, what is your favorite thing about yourself? Oh wow. What is my favorite thing about myself? I like that I care about making other people laugh and like feel good. Like I'm always happiest if I'm making someone laugh or making someone have a good time. That is when I feel most at peace and I'm an extreme extrovert. So, and I like that about me, you know, that like, I'm always thinking like, is this person enjoying themselves? Yes. <laughs> like in my company, I, I like that about me. I love that. And I agree. I feel like not enough people are, <laughs> are making sure everyone feels good. I'm always like, why is everyone okay with silence in right, here? Right, like, right. We need to be having a good time. <laughs> right. Okay. What is your most important self-care practice? Well, I guess I'll give two answers. Lately, I have cut back on my drinking pretty significantly. I still drink. Mm. I don't think I'm ever going to go full sober, but I do think that has been an act of self-care. I think like, first of all, 
in business school, we drank so much. And that's like, mm-hmm. that's the norm, right? Fine. And then, but post business school, there was a bit of a lull and then it just sort of like picked back up for me. Yeah. And it's been that way for several years and I sort of just haven't questioned it. But lately I was starting to question it. Like, is this, do I want to be drinking this much? Mm. Like, and so I've just been really um, purposeful about cutting back. And I actually now pretty consistently am drinking about a third of what I was when I started this. I started this sort of like back in like, call it February, March, which for me is a huge, that's just like a huge, right? So that to me has felt like um, self-care, but I would say on more of a like, what do I do sort of thing, self-care, I try to be really deliberate about planning time for my husband and me mm. and we have a daughter now we've two she's two years old oh my she she's the cutest thing in the entire world she also is a lot of work and it's very easy to just put all of our energy and focus into her and I know a lot of couples who do that and so I from the moment she was born have been super deliberate about planning time for just me and my husband and I remember we went we went away to Cancun for like a week when she was I don't know, maybe she's five months old. And I remember someone else being like, oh my God, like you're okay leaving her? Like she's five months. And I was like, yes, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And also she needs to be okay, right? Like she needs to get comfortable early with the idea that like her father and I have a relationship outside of her. Mm. And, and that's something I have to protect. So for me, that's self-care because I rely on that relationship a lot, like to feel balanced, to feel at ease, like, just, you know, to feel comfortable. And if I neglect it, then I I can feel it. So that for me is self-care. I feel, I think, I think a lot of people talk about entrepreneurship and sort of like being in a grind mode or when you're talking about it with men, especially Mm -hmm. they're like, I'm not going to date or get married or anything until I'm like successful. But what I've found personally is like being in a relationship is a big reason that I've been successful, having that person to rely on and things like that. So how has that like helped you throughout your entrepreneurship journey with you and your husband? And how does that work for you guys? I mean, first of all, my co-founder and I, we didn't pay ourselves for the first several months of Minted. Mm-hmm. There's no, I don't know how Amanda did it. Well, I do know how Amanda did it. She worked in finance, so she had money, money. Yeah. <laughs> I did not. Okay? So I, there's no way I could have done that if I didn't have like a financially secure partner, yeah. right? Um, who was willing and, and excited to support me in those first couple of months um, where we were paying ourselves literally nothing. So that's just, you know, one very tangible way. Like, But he also has been a hundred percent my biggest cheerleader and support system and entrepreneurship is so hard. Like I'm beating myself up all the time. I'm always feeling like I'm failing. I'm always feeling like, Oh, this thing went wrong. And like, it's easy. If you don't have anyone else to sort of negate that, that negative talk, Mm -hmm. you just start to believe it. And so having someone who is constantly like, no, you are amazing. You are doing an amazing job. Very few people can do what you have done and what you continue to do. Your team is lucky to have you. Like he's just always reinforcing that so that, you know, I hear it and I start to believe it. And I don't just tell myself like, oh, you're, you're, you're doing a terrible job. Yes. I love that. And I think everyone needs that in some way, shape or form. And that leads me to my next question, which is you started a beauty company in 2017. Yes. And that is a, that was a completely different era for companies, for female founders, for everything. So 
Uh, and I remember at that time, like I mentioned, I was like grad, I was in college, mm-hmm. and that's when I first started learning about entrepreneurship. And I think it was really glamorized. And so I want to hear your take on what was it like starting a company then, and do you feel that it was overly glamorized, and what do you think that impact has been? Probably it was overly glamorized because the stories, a lot of the stories about women who I found, a lot of the stories about women who started businesses sort of in that era, call it like the Rent the Runway, which I think was maybe like 2012-ish to all the way to the girls who did like The Wing, which was a little bit before us, like that era, it was all like white women. Yeah. And most of them were pretty independently wealthy, right? And had really strong networks and were able to raise a lot of money pretty much just on the strength of their idea. That was not our experience at all, right? So by the time we launched, we had in the bank $50,000 that we had raised. Mm -hmm. That's it. And so now we had a term sheet for another, I think, 250, but it hadn't come through. The deal wasn't final and nothing's, you know, nothing's done until it's done. And so we quit our jobs with 50,000 from an angel investor and started a whole company. Like that, there's nothing glamorous about that, right? Like you're not paying yourself. You barely have enough money to like get the product, get the product in and then ship it out. That is not glamorous. That's hard and it's very scary. And it's also very different from like an Emily Weiss at Glossier, no shade at all. But when Emily Weiss launched, she had already raised like $10 million. I know. So I can't relate. (laughs) (laughs) I can't relate. So yeah, I do think it is probably a bit over glamorized. That said, it's still the best job I've ever had, mm-hmm. you know, and I and I am so much better as a business person, as a leader, as a CEO, like as a partner, all of these things because I've I've gone through this. But yeah, it has not 90 percent of it has not been glamorous. Yeah, Starting with a 50K is. Wow, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So tell us how you came up with the idea and started for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah. Um, okay, so my co-founder, her name is Amanda. She has stepped down from the company, but you know, in the beginning we were, you know, in it together. She and I, we both graduated from Harvard Business School. And when we graduated, we knew we wanted to start a business together. We were like, this would be so cool. Like we think we work well together. This would be amazing, but we didn't have an idea yet. And I love, and people ask me all the time, how do you find a co-founder? And I love that she and I found each other before we figured out the business because then we got to figure out what's a business that works for the two of us, right? Versus I meet a lot of like founders or would-be founders who have an idea that they're really excited about, but it's their idea. And then they want to find a co-founder. And a lot of times what I'll say is like, look, one thing that is probably going to be difficult for you is if this is your idea and you've done a bunch of the upfront work to sort of get it off the ground and then you bring in someone who now has the co-founder title title but do they really feel like a co-founder to you like that's that's that could potentially get rough which I've seen happen but anyway back to my story so we knew we wanted to work together and so we would we both moved to New York and we would just get together periodically and chat about like okay well what could we do you know and and that was so fun that's the best part of like startup you know when you are just having ideas you know pouring a glass of wine like well what could we do what what do we like what are we good at what are what are we challenged with and she mentioned during one of those conversations she was like well I've been looking for the perfect nude lipstick for three years and I was like, girl, I can't find any lipstick, much less a nude lipstick. Like, I, like I literally don't wear it. And so for both of us, that was sort of the moment where we were like, huh, maybe 
there's a there there, right? Like maybe the reason neither of us can find a new lipstick is because these beauty companies don't care enough about people who look like us to create the nuanced shades that you have to create in order to work for a woman like me, right? Like my lips are two-toned mm-hmm. and dark, so I can't take any old beige or any old pink off the shelf and make it look like a nude. So, you know, if there isn't a beauty company that's paying attention to our needs and thinks that we are worth developing these complex nuanced shades, maybe we should do it. And and that was sort of the, the genesis of it. And then we got we got to work literally in our kitchens, like making lipsticks. And yeah, that that was sort of our, our origin story. Oh my goodness. And how soon after you got the idea did you launch? I think the unofficial I think the official version we have told the press in the past is like maybe a year. But I think the real answer is probably closer to two. You know, like I think we maybe had that initial conversation in like twenty fifteen. And then you don't like well maybe some people like have the idea and then like they're off to the races. But she and I were working full time jobs. I was working in consulting. She at the time was working at Barney's. We were busy and I was on the road. So it wasn't like I just grind on this all day, every day. This was this was on the weekends exclusively. Sometimes at night, like in my hotel, I would try to bang out like a pitch deck, but mostly we'd get together on the weekends, we'd make our lipsticks, we'd then package those lipsticks and send them to influencers and be like, hey, if you, you know, we just want you to try, like, you know, yeah. we're just two black girls with lipstick. We'd love for you to give it a <laughs> give it a whirl. And that was, yeah, that we did that for, you know, probably a full year before we launched. Wow. And after you launched, was there a moment where you had like a big break? There was, I would say the first big break, which really surprised both of us, was we got an, a press article in Yahoo, Ooh. Yahoo Beauty. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't read Yahoo Beauty. I pretty much only go to Yahoo for finance um, yeah. information. So it, it had not really occurred to me what Yahoo Beauty is out here. That article blew up, like blew up our sales. So whoever is out here reading Yahoo Beauty... They're buying. They're buying. Like they read the article, clicked the link, bought the lipstick. And I remember we were, we were somewhere at that point. I think we were in Boston and our phones, you know, if you use Shopify, when you get a sale, there's like a little ding and our phones like kept ding, 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 dinging. We were like, what's happening? And, And then we looked and we saw and we went and said like, what's the source of this traffic? Yahoo Beauty. So that was, that was sort of the first big break. And then I think later on we had another big break because Essence did an article about us. And so- Yahoo Beauty was definitely a big break. Essence was even bigger, oh, right? Because yeah. they've got a That's big your audience. audience. 100%. Um, so both of those things happened within our first, call it like six months of launch, which was really oh, great. Amazing. Congrats on that. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I guess how have you had to pivot your company? It's been six-ish years now mm-hmm. and you're still doing amazing. So what has been like a big moment where you had to like maybe restructure or any bumps in the road that come with growth that people don't always talk about, you know? Yeah, there are always, always, always bumps in the road. And it hasn't been fully linear. I would say the, we probably had our hardest year last year, 2022. So the context there is, and I'm sure, you know, some number of your listeners are super into following D2C news and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So they will know. 2022 was a really difficult year for direct-to-consumer companies, particularly direct-to-consumer companies who needed to raise venture capital. A lot of companies were not able to. A lot of companies went under. And essentially, the reason why is because, you know, with the rest of the world, interest rates went up. So all of a sudden, venture capitalists were like, money is much more expensive. We don't want to give it to, to brands 
and companies that aren't profitable. And most D2C companies weren't profitable because acquiring customers online is extremely expensive. And we were one of those companies. We were not profitable. Our customer acquisition costs were sky high and only getting higher. And so about halfway through 2022, we sort of had to take a hard look in the mirror and in a lot of ways sort of blow up our our current operations. So we pulled back a lot on digital marketing, like 70% dropped, dropped our spend. Started focusing much more on our retention channels, on our affiliate channels, because those were, you know, uh, higher ROI. And then also really started thinking about like, what does retail expansion look like? Because the wholesale channel is, is more profitable um, from a you know bottom line perspective. So doing all of that quickly and like getting the whole team sort of like to lock arms around like essentially a completely new vision and strategy, that was difficult. And, you know, we sacrificed growth in order to be profitable, but we are profitable, mm-hmm. you know, and we got there quickly and not everyone did. So I'm, I'm very proud of my team and, and proud of the work that we did, but it was very hard and not what anyone on the team was used to. Absolutely. And I think we've had a big shift like since 2020, especially, I guess, for listeners who aren't familiar with a lot of lo- like privacy laws changing, it became much more difficult to acquire customers through things like Facebook ads. And that really impacted the ease of finding your ideal customer exactly. on the internet. Exactly. So it became way more expensive to do so because it wasn't happening as easily. Exactly. And for your company, I guess, were, how, I guess you were relying a lot on that digital marketing. So where was the scaling back, I think, most helpful for you? And what did you do instead? To Because, because like you said, not every company came out of there profitable. So yeah. how did that happen for you? What was the big thing? Yeah, I mean, we scaled back primarily our um, paid Facebook mm-hmm. spend. That was our biggest source of traffic of new customers. Um, so we scaled that back a ton. And instead, we started actually really thinking about like, our brand ambassadors and grew our brand ambassador program a lot. You know, I think we had, we always had people who like would use their referral code, right? Somewhat sporadically, but we started paying way more attention to that program. And now our number of active brand ambassadors is like well into the two thousands and they are actively using their code, like promoting the brand. And that's obviously just a much higher ROI channel. It takes a lot of handholding and it takes a lot of effort. It's not as easy as like, oh, we made this ad and now Facebook's going to blast it to a thousand people. No, recruiting new brand ambassadors is like a full-time thing. Um, so it's, it's hard work, but it's worth it. So that was one of the big shifts that we made. Another is we really started leaning in on affiliate so like media affiliates, so, you know, the links that you see that if you click on them, they get, a, they get a cut. We really started leaning in on that because we found with beauty, like that could be a really big, a really big channel for us. Like beauty girls, they're reading the articles and they're clicking the links and they want to learn more. And so growing that channel also was, was really pivotal for us. Oh, I love that. That's good to know. I think people underestimate the power of that sort of like, small but very engaged group of people who can really drive for a business. So that's amazing. So I guess as a busy startup founder, was Mm -hmm. there ever a moment where you personally were facing like a level of burnout or a level of like, I can't keep operating the way that I have been operating? Oh, 100%. You know, I, 
I probably feel burned out at least two, three times a year, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> like, um, and because I am burned out because it's, it's hard and we've always operated really leanly. So, and then now also I have a child. Yeah. So yeah, I feel burned out all, all the all time. All the time, yeah. 100%. What was the decision like, to, or did you like consciously choose to have a baby as well? And you yeah. were like, I have to do this. Or were you like, I'm going to put this off and just let it happen? No, it was a very conscious decision. It was a pandemic decision. We all just make all sorts of crazy decisions <laughs> in the pandemic. And yeah, it was sometime around like, right when the pandemic had started and we were at home all the time that I was like, huh, I guess now's a, now's a good time. Like I'm just, I'm just here. None of us knows when this is going to be over. And so, yeah, so we were like, let's, let's do it. And this was after I spent a long time being very much like, eh, kids aren't for me. And then literally it felt like sort of overnight. I was like, actually, I think I do want to do this and I want to do it right now. You know? <laughs> really? um, so yeah, it was very conscious. Oh my God. So how do you manage your time now? You said that you have, you guys have a four day work week. What does your week look like? So, you know, I am very much just focused on family in the mornings and in the evenings. You know, I have decided like minted gets that call it 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. period. And they can have the whole thing, but they can't really have much outside of that. And yeah, sometimes at night I'll hop on and answer a Slack or a text or whatever. But for the most part, my team knows like I'm not really available because my daughter goes to sleep at seven. So I've only got two hours in the evening to be with her. Then I got to eat and then I got to chit chat with my husband and then I got to read and then I got to go to sleep. So there's not like, mm-hmm. it's not a lot of time for me to be going back and forth with you tomorrow at eight. I'll be back online and, you know, we can go back at it. I think that that is probably not the mindset of a lot of entrepreneurs. I think like grind set is very much the, the trend and I'm not a grind set person. I am a take care of yourself, take care of your family, show up for your family, show up for your friends. Like I'm that person. And I think that's very crucial and underrated. People aren't talking about it. And I think it's just because the balance conversation sort of just goes because there's like a badge of honor of being super busy. But I do think knowing that it is possible for you to have this business now and run it and also make time for yourself and your family is very encouraging to those of us who are interested in entrepreneurship. But I'm curious if what was your day or your week looking like in 2018, for example? In 2018, it was not nearly as balanced. I was still in New York Mm -hmm. and along with, but here's the thing. I was in New York, and if you're in New York, there's always events. Yes. So you're every, d- night. every night there's an event, and and also I was you know newer to entrepreneurship, so I wanted to be at the events. I wanted to be at every VC's dinner, happy hour, networking thing, panel, whatever. So in some ways that is still work because I'm going, I'm, I'm networking with you, I'm yeah, I'm I'm learning from you, whatever. So my work day would be much longer because I wouldn't be getting home until like nine, ten o'clock, but once I, first of all, moved to Philly, second of all, went through the pandemic, I started to realize it's not that those events don't have value. They do, but they don't have enough value for me to need to be doing them every day. So now I pick and choose. Like I'm going to an event in July that uh, one of the funds um, that I really respect and admire is hosting. And they also put on great events. Yeah. Like every single time I've been to one of their events, it is a fantastic event. Okay. So when I got that invite, I was like, yes, I will be there. 
most invites, I'm like, I've been to your stuff. Yeah. And it's just okay. You know, like, it's just okay. So I don't, and, and by the way, it's all in New York. So now I got I to gotta schlep on Amtrak. Yeah. You got to make it worth my time if I'm going to schlep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just, I say no to a lot more things. And I like that. And I feel like you have to. So you're, you're talking a lot about VC and funds. Can you talk to us about your process of raising and what that was like? Especially because <sighs> I think even, like you said, today as a D2C or a product founder, Raising is very is difficult. So hard. So, how has it been for you? Can you give advice to any of the girls trying to do so? I can, but I want to give advice that is relevant for the time that we are in. Now, look, I do think the economy is a pendulum. I think VC funding is a pendulum. Oh, I think yes. at some point it's going to swing back, right? Consumer products are going to be like all the rage again. So, I don't think we're going to be in this time forever. I do think, though, that the mindset around profitability and growth has shifted in a way that probably will remain. When I was raising money, no one cared about profitability. Like when I tell you, no one, it never came up. It never came up. I think because the assumption was you'll scale and you'll scale and you'll scale and eventually via scale, you will hit profitability. But then we had a whole lot of consumer products companies go, go public and still not hit profitability right? Stitch Fix still isn't profitable. Uh, Rent the Runway still isn't profitable. Allbirds, I don't know if they went public, but I'm pretty sure they're not profitable, right? So all of a sudden it was like, wait, these companies got to scale. Yeah. And they still aren't making money. So that sort of made VCs timid. So I do think when other people are going out to raise in the future, if you're doing a consumer product brand, Probably you are going to have to care about profit and be really thoughtful about how you're going to get to profitability earlier. But in terms of my process, how we did it, you know, I think in the beginning, I didn't have the luxury of having a network of investors. So I reached out to everybody and I took every meeting. I'm so curious. I'm sorry to interrupt mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. but I think there's this conception or conception that if you go to Harvard Business School, you'll just meet everybody and know everybody. And that wasn't the case for you. No, because here's the thing. If you go to business school, you are going to leave with a great network. That doesn't mean you're going to leave, you're going to leave knowing every venture capitalist, Yeah. right? Like maybe two of my friends went into VC. They didn't go to VC companies that were going to fund my business. So it really was still a lot of networking. Now I did email, I went into the HBS database. I found every woman who called herself an investor of any sort, angel investor, VC, like every single one did a search for this, right? Just I emailed every single one of them. And one of them became our first investor. That $50,000 came from one of those women that I cold emailed, right? But I still had to do the work. I still had to reach out and I didn't know any of them. And I still did the work of looking up like, okay, what are the venture capitalists firms that focus on consumer products or that funded some of the consumer product brands, you know, that I'm a fan of who funded Glossier, right? right? Who funded Harry's, who funded Warby Parker? Let me reach out to them. So I was cold emailing. And then also once you start talking to investors, they want to introduce you to other investors. So that's how I got into a bunch of different rooms, but it all started with, yeah, just cold reaching out and, you know, a few warm intros. Another thing I would do along with the HBS thing is I would go to LinkedIn And then I would look up angel investors and then I would just literally anyone who I had any sort of connection to a pathway to, I'd be like, okay, I'm two, two degrees of separation from this investor. So I'm going to reach out to my middle school friend who I haven't spoken to in 20 years and be like, Hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so? Because I see that you're connected on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. 
did a lot of that, like the dirty, nitty gritty. That's just to get into the rooms. Then once you're in the room, you know, having like a, a, a really strong pitch deck is super important and being able to speak very clearly and concisely to exactly what your value prop is, exactly who your customer is, and exactly why they need you and your brand, like you've got to be crisp on that. You know, it can't be rambly. It can't be sort of like you've, you've got to be tight on that. So you practice. I would practice all the time. And, and every time I pitched, that was a practice, right? And I'd get feedback on like what I could do better um, or things where it was clear, like, oh, they asked this question and I didn't really know the answer. I sort of fumbled my way through that. I'm not going to fumble through it again, Mm-mm. right? So it just, just constant. That is really how we got to that first, call it, you know, our, our pre-seed round was, I think we did a tranche of like 400K and then eventually expanded it to a million. That's how we got there. Just just going, 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 going. Yeah. And I think a lot of people forget about that, that that was just the raising money. That's not the product development. That's right. not the marketing. That's right. not the sales or anything exactly. like that, which it's so much work to be an entrepreneur. But totally. what do you think, what was your value prop? I mean, in 2017, as far as I remember, there weren't like black owned beauty brands that were prestige beauty that were in like Sephora and stuff right, like that. Right. So was that really what you were pu- pushing there? And 100%. did people agree with it? Like what was the feedback you were getting? Yeah, 100%. We had this, I'll never forget this slide. It was like a quadrant, you know, four quadrant slide. And on the X axis, which one goes Girl, horizontal? Girl, don't ask me yet. I'm not school <laughs> I think, yet. <laughs> I, think, I think horizontal is X and yeah. vertical is Y. Okay, mm-hmm. so on the horizontal axis was price. And then on the vertical axis, uh, access was niche. And basically what we argued was if you look at sort of the higher end price, so like more, more prestige price and niche being, you know, women of color, that quadrant was empty. There were brands in the other three quadrants, but that quadrant was empty. That's my value prop. We know that women of color outspend white women on beauty upwards of 80%. So they're willing to spend, but no one's speaking to them. You know, so there's this huge white space. We can fill it. And by the way, at the time, Fenty didn't exist when we yeah, watched. Yeah, I know, right? So, yeah, exactly. So when when investors looked around and looked at the data, they were like, huh, these girls are right. Really, there is a big white space here. So that was the value prop that we really leaned on. I think so. And I just think that it's cool that it's important that the data really spoke to it is that the black women outspending white women is is an incredible piece of data that people tend to ignore. Right. But I feel like seeing that and then also seeing that the, the, the price point of like not having prestige beauty, I feel like it's nice because I remember when I first, I bought a minted bronzer and I was like, there's never been like a bronzer that really, really works for me. And it was just so nice to be seen in the store and there's that emotional connection. Yeah. So how did you start building your customer base after you started, you know, getting the money you're in production, but building the community around it? You know, I think we were very consistent and deliberate about two things that I think really helped from a community standpoint. One was social, social media, posted on Instagram every day, multiple times a day, and responded to every comment, you know, every DM. We were just like, very much, this is how this is how we're going to build a community. And then we also did events and, you know, pop-ups all over. So we would do them in New York, we would do them in Chicago, we would do them in Boston. And it was just me and Amanda, you know, for our first several months, we didn't have any employees. So it would literally be us packing up our lipsticks, 
getting on Amtrak and going to Boston and doing a pop up because we were like, we want to know, we want people to know us. We want people to meet us. We want people to try the lipsticks in person because we're not carried in any store. So this is how they're going to be able to do it. Like it was very much road show, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but in so doing a lot of our customers met us. So a lot of our customers felt like they, they didn't just know the brand. They knew the owners of the brand and that, you know, made it feel very personal. Um, and so that's really how we started to build the community. I love that, the in-person events and stuff like that. It's, it's crucial. But when you went, how did you make that jump from being D2C, just selling to your community, to being sold in stores? And what is required for that? Like, mm-hmm. what do people not know is, like, you need to have to be able to be sold in, like, a big oh, store? Yeah, it is, it is such a different ball game selling at a retailer, um, the thing it takes a lot of is capital. It takes a lot of capital because no matter how many doors you're launching in, probably any retailer that's going to launch you is going to want to launch you in minimum 100 doors, okay? And so then they've got to stock those 100 doors with a minimum order of every product of yours that they take. So just right out the gate, that's a bunch of product going out the door. And that's if you're only in 100, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes retailers want to launch you in 500, 1,000, 2,000 doors. So you are sending straight out the gate a ton of inventory all at once. That means you have to buy a ton of inventory all at once. So that right there is a capital outlay that's that's very different um, because you're sending the whole assortment all at once. Like, you know, if you're D to C, I'm buying inventory as I run through it. Right. I'm not just saying, like, let me buy every single one of my lip shades all at once right now. I'm not going to do that. I don't need every single one of them. But Ulta does. Yeah. Right. For their initial order. Mm -hmm. So that's one capital outlay. Then most of these retailers, they want you to pay for the fixturing. Now we got. They want you to pay? Really? mm -hmm. Now we got lucky with both Ulta and Target that we launched in 2021. You know, 2020 was very focused on Black Lives Matter. Businesses were very focused on expanding their Black presence. We came in and were able to ride that wave. And so some of those fees and things were waived or, you know, covered by the the retailer. Very grateful for that. But since then, we've, you know, we've expanded and those costs are not covered. If you're paying for fixtures, that's very expensive. You can expect anywhere from- In every store. In every store. And, you know, these fixtures might cost you anywhere from- a hundred to a thousand dollars a door, depending on what you want to do, how yeah. fancy you want it to be, how custom you want it to be, mm-hmm. whatever. Even if we're again just in those hundred doors and just spending a hundred per door, now I'm at ten thousand dollars just for fixtures. Yeah, I haven't put any product in it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's another capital outlay. Then these retailers expect you to pay for marketing opportunities, like with the retailer. With the retailer, okay. And the way a lot of that is done is via sampling program so they want you to send them a bunch of product for free so that they can then give it for free to their loyal customers or sometimes their employees or whomever so there's a lot of free product that you need to be able to provide there are you know they'll do these things like you can be featured on the home page for you know black history month or for women's women's history month but you got to pay for that so there are all of these marketing expenses that you you have to cover and so it's just it's an expensive game and you have to be well like capitalized well enough to be able to do it and that is why I think you see a lot of black owned brands struggle to get on shelf because just to even be able to play that game you need a lot of capital 
so that's that's one thing I think a lot of people don't know. The other thing is, for us, we had to have conversations with these retailers for a long time before we got in. It wasn't just like a, we pitched them, they said yes, we launched. No, I was talking to Ulta for probably two years before we got on Shelf at Ulta. Same with Target, longer. It is, you know, these buyers, they want to get to know you. They want to watch your brand grow. They want to see what, what your product pipeline looks like. Do you sometimes get brands that straight out the gate immediately find their way into a Sephora? Yes. Yeah. Is that typically how it works? No. I see. This is so interesting. I love hearing <laughs> about this. I hope the audience is too, because I'm like, I love to hear the business behind the scenes. You mentioned Black-owned brands. Obviously, being a Black founder, being a Black owner, people like love to see those success stories yeah. and they love hearing about them. You're kind of like more of an OG in, uh, in terms of like the beauty industry when it comes to find founding a black owned brand. I'm curious what sort of funds or what sort of resources did you use to do that since you were so early? And what are some now that you think are really good for people who are looking to start their own business? Well, so you know, I spoke about all the events I used to go to. Part of the reason I went to a lot of events early on was because I needed a founder network. Mm. I think of a founder network is extremely important because these are the people you're going to call on and rely on when you have questions, when you're not sure about something. So I went to, that was the big part of the reason I went to a lot of these events. I was trying to build my founder network. So for me, you know, female founder funds, there's actually, there's, there's actually a fund called female founder fund, but there are also just other funds run by women and focused on women. I found that they tend to put on better events, particularly from a perspective of meeting other founders. In general, this is going to sound, I guess, discriminatory. I don't mean to be, but in general, I have found women founders to be much more helpful than male founders, like by a factor of 10x. Now, I'm not saying all men. Obviously, there are some wonderful male founders out there. But generally speaking, I have found women founders are much more helpful to each other. Building out that network would be my number one piece of advice for anyone wanting to do this. Like, you need to meet other people doing this because it is so singular. It's so hard to relate. It Like, no one else is going to be able to relate to you if they aren't doing the same thing. So that's my number one piece of advice. There are pitch competitions and things that you can do, some of which are very much focused on Black founders and founders of color. I don't think we did any of those, but I also think more of them came in, came newer, to be like our newer twenty twenty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that could be you know one way to sort of like build up your your capital and also build up your network. Yeah, I think just like having true a true strong founder network has been the most important thing to me as I've been on this journey because then you know I'm talking to people about how I'm going to raise my next round, sort of like, what did it look like for you? What was your process, which I'd be sure to include in my process. I, ha- I get advice around, like, if I need a new warehouse, what warehouse are you using? If I, you know, if I need new components, what are the component, like, factories you use? Yeah. I just, you know, I had to build up that network. And I really like that. I haven't, I haven't heard that piece of advice, like, said so well before, because any job, anything, you need a community to really make it like a long-term thing. And so I feel like that's a really important thing for people to remember too, is also to build, who was it? I think Issa Rae said this, where you like need to build with your peers, not yes. just upwards. 100%. Yeah. yeah. That Yes. I love that Issa quote because she's so right. Like if I look at the founders that sort of launched in my sort of same era and how much we've been able to support one another, 
you know, it's much more so than like the, the founders that came before me who like reached a ton of success before me now they might want to help, but they're, they're off doing other things. They're busier. Their board is bigger. Their, their companies are bigger. They've got hundred person teams. It's harder for them to relate to me, but you know, I can still learn from all of the founders and connect with and network with and build with founders sort of on my same level, my peers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, who are your, some of your favorites that have helped you a lot on the time? Um, my good friend, Natalie Mackey, she's the CEO and founder at Winky Lux. Oh yeah. Um, she's fantastic. I really consider her to be a mentor. Um, Nancy Twine from Briogeo. Love. Fantastic. So helpful. Um, and just built such a beautiful brand. Uh, Melissa Butler at the Lip Bar. So cool. She's been really helpful. You know, we keep in touch. We, we, you know, when something's happening, like, hey, did this, how did this go for you? How did it go for you? Um, so she's been really great. Let's see. Oh, there's just so many. Polly at Unbound. She is just so helpful. There's just, oh, there's so many. So many. I know, Absolutely. like, I, I'm, I'm forgetting a bunch of people right now. But again, all of them are women. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they just truly have been a real support system and, and, and very helpful. I love that. Yeah. I'm curious then, it's so interesting because I think you build a really incredible company, but at the same time, it's kind of like you have to build your own personal brand. How have you managed doing those two things at the same time? Yeah, it's so hard. I think all the time that like I'm not doing the CEO thing right. Really? Because my personal brand is not nearly as polished as you would think a CEO probably should be. Uh, you know, I, I spoke about TikTok. My TikTok is not polished. It is not polished. I am in my pajamas. My makeup isn't done. I'm ranting and raving about any number of things. <laughs> you know, like, is that CEO behavior? I'm sure some people would say no, but it is my personal brand. My brand is I am honest. I am authentic. I I am very opinionated. And I like to talk about my opinions. I like to be humorous when I can. All of that is true of me. And if I felt like I couldn't be who I am in this role, it just wouldn't be the right role for me. You know, and there will probably come a day where Minted needs a new CEO and I'm no longer right for this seat. I'm okay with that, right? Because I'm going to grow too. The, the brand's going to evolve. I'm going to evolve. So what I, but what I'm not okay with is the idea that in order to be a CEO, I have to be like buttoned up and packaged in a certain way that is not, you know, authentic to me. So I have built a personal brand, but it is very much like it's, it is my brand. It is what I am. I love that because what's the point of like getting to this level of success or bringing something into the world if you can't do it authentically? And it's, I mean, the bills are paid, you're profitable. Right. So that's what matters really. Right. And uh, according to people who may think you're not as polished, but I just appreciate that there's more of a multifaceted approach to being a founder, being a CEO these days. So yeah. I'm happy to, I'm happy to see that. And I guess when you say you feel like you're not doing it right, you mentioned earlier that you feel like you're failing all the time, mm-hmm. which I'm not happy to hear that that doesn't go away, but okay. But I'm curious, what was the biggest lesson you've learned throughout your time as a CEO or like mm-hmm. the biggest failure that taught you maybe the biggest lesson? Let's see. That's a, a really good question. I will say there was a time where I was not a good leader and like manager, you know, I've, and I've said this before, I think in the beginning, I was a good founder, but not a good CEO. Mm. 
when you think about what you need to be a good founder, you need to be scrappy. You need to be ambitious. You need to be someone who's willing to get shit done quickly with very few resources. You need to be willing to jump over hurdles and all of that. I'm good at that, particularly if it's something I'm excited about and passionate about. But to be a good CEO, you need to be able to manage people and nurture and develop people's careers and their skill sets. You need to get people to be excited about the mission and then to further that mission and evolve that mission and and to feel like what it is they are doing in the organization really matters and that you really care about that. And I did not used to be good at that. And, and, and it took a lot of work and realizing that that was something I failed at. The reason I knew I was failing at it is because my team, you know, we did 360 reviews and it was very clear this was something I was failing at. People felt like I was too critical. People felt like I was not appreciative of their work. People felt like I, you know, was not showing up for them and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in the rooms with them enough. All of this really critical feedback that was so hurtful and it made me so sad because I was trying. It's not like I wasn't trying. I really was trying, but I wasn't getting it right. And and if if we hadn't done that process, if I hadn't heard that feedback, I wouldn't have started really working to get better. So now I spend a lot of time thinking about my team and their growth and their development, thinking about how can I stretch you and challenge you, but in a way that is aligned with what it is you want to do Mm. in your career so that you feel good about what you're learning here, what you're accomplishing here and what you can take with you should you leave and go to that next position. Like it just, I was not centering that. And now I do center that. And so I, I'm much better at it now, still tons of work to do. Uh, You know, I think you always have to progress, particularly when it comes to people and relationships, but I'm better and I'm very happy about that. I love that. And we love to see growth. But I think every CEO and founder I have interviewed has said that, that managing people is the hardest part of it. Right. And I think that being able to recognize that and change it is is amazing. But it's a lesson everyone has to learn. I feel like entrepreneurship and life in many ways is just a series of like lessons and learning. Uh, and it never feels like it's ever like fully done. 100%. And I... I say this a lot. I actually was just in Houston. I was giving a speech at the Forte Foundation, and if you're familiar with them. And one of the things I said is you always want to approach whatever it is you're doing from a place of learning, right? Like, because when you are learning, you are humble, you are vulnerable, you are asking questions, you are excited about getting the answers to those questions and getting to the next thing. It's just a much better way to approach pretty much anything, right? Like even before we did this podcast, I have a podcast for everyone. I would love you to listen to it. Not another business podcast. (laughs) And I spent the first, what, 20 minutes just asking you questions. I want to learn about your journey. How did you build this? What what advice do you have for me? Like what, what are the things that have worked really well for you? What are the things that are sort of like, uh, waste, waste, waste of time, whatever. Like I'm always, always, always trying to learn. And I just think that is such, such a good way to approach life. And I, what, What makes me cringe is when I meet people, founders particularly, who it seems very clear that they feel like they don't have anything left to learn. They feel like, oh, Mm. I've done it. I've made it. I've learned it. I'm the expert. And so now all I need to do is like tell you what to do. You know, I just, I don't like that. I like when people are coming from a place of wanting to learn, wanting to grow. And that's, I think, the best thing anyone can do. With your podcast, mm-hmm. what made you decide to do that in addition? It's kind of like building your personal brand too, but like what made yeah. you decide to start it? 
Yeah. Um, you know, it, this is my third attempt at podcasting. Really? And I loved it the first two times, but they both sort of trickled. And But I knew I wanted to do it again. I was like, I want to, I just, I really like it. I think what I like about it is like, I do have a lot of opinions. I do like to share my opinions, but I also like being a part of the the zeitgeist and like pushing certain conversations forward. I think about this with your podcast a lot. The last episode I listened to when you were talking about like the things that you did, like getting off of birth control. Yeah. Right. And like really listening to your body and not letting like doctors or anyone else dictate to you what's going to be right for you. I think that is so powerful, particularly to hear that from a black woman. You get to own what's happening with your body. You get to make those decisions. Someone else doesn't get to make those decisions for you, right? And so you're pushing the conversation forward. I think that's really important. And I like when I'm able to do that too. So that's why I wanted to get back in the podcasting game. For this podcast in particular, you know, when I sort of looked at the landscape of podcasts, and obviously there are a bajillion out there. When I looked at the landscape, I was like, well, what am I, one, suited to talk about? And two, what's missing? And I felt like, as many business podcasts as there are, most of them are led by men, hosted by men. And most of them are giving very like basic sort of takes, right? Like exactly. here are the facts and here are the numbers. And now I'm going to have the CEO of Google on and talk to him. And he's not really going to tell you anything because he's just using it as a PR opportunity. And so how much are you really learning? I felt like that was just so boring. And business to me is not boring. I think business is fascinating. I love it. I teach at a business school. Like it is, it is, it's fun to me. But business podcasts are not fun, most of them. And so I was like, I want to do a fun business focused podcast. So I reached out to my homegirl, Daniela. She's a lawyer. And I was like, how fun would it also be if you got like the, the founder take and the lawyer take? Oh, she, yeah. She's a lawyer at a startup, right? So it's like, we're both startup junkies coming at it from two different perspectives and let's make it fun. And that's exactly what I think we've accomplished. But yeah, I just, it's because I just felt like it, it wasn't out there. Absolutely. Oh, I love that so much. And because like you said, I, I'm a business junkie myself and there's just not enough out there. There's not enough things that make you excited about what you're doing out there. Because like you said, people aren't giving, they're still gatekeeping. Everyone's like, yeah, I'm coming on the show, but they don't tell you like that you had 50K in the bank. Like just giving that number is like opens a worldview for a lot of people to see what's possible for them with 50K in the bank or how you reached out to the people at HBS. And so I really appreciate that. And it is pushing the conversation forward. So I'm excited and everyone's definitely going to have to go listen. So I want to also ask about business school self. Selfishly. Mm-hmm. And also because I think there are some girlies listening who do want to go to business school or going or things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So where did you go for undergrad? Uh, Harvard. You also went to Harvard. Yeah. That's what I, I thought. Mm-hmm. I just saw another person say that. So I wasn't sure if I mixed it up. So what was the value or why did you choose to go in the first place? So I originally thought I wanted to go to law school. Oh, same. You're speaking and, to the choir. Yeah. And I, I took the LSAT. I crushed the LSAT, by oh, the way. period. Crushed it. But pretty much as soon it was, as it was over and I like got my score, I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> like, I think I just got so wrapped up in like studying for the LSAT and getting through the LSAT that that, that motivated me for yeah. a long time. But then I got, I did it and I got the score. And then I was like, but I don't actually want to be a lawyer. So that... Back to the drawing board. So once I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do, I was did like, you well, do this in college or post? No, post. post. Oh, so I was like maybe two years out of college when I took the LSAT. What were you doing then? 
I worked at Sears. I was a buyer. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so I was like, I don't want to do that. What do I want to do? Well, then I moved to New York. And the reason I moved to New York was because my now husband, then boyfriend, lived in New York. And I was like, I gotta, I'm gotta, i over this long distance, so let me move. Took a job. And at that job, multiple people had done MLT for their MBA program. I had never even heard of it. And I honestly had not thought about business school. But I very suddenly was connected to people who not only were doing business school, but who were also doing, you know, this this management does it stand for management leadership for tomorrow? I think absolutely MLT? horrible name. Yeah, it Love is them so much. Yeah, like it's they've not changed a great life, but they've got a rebrand. Not a great name. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so MLT, they have an MBA prep program focused on people of color to help, you know, increase the pipeline of people of color in business school. So I found out about that, immediately applied. Like I literally hadn't even thought about business school. And then as soon as I met like two people doing this, I was like, oh, that's what I need to do. I did the same thing in undergrad. <laughs> yeah. So I did it and I got in and and I just, you know, through that process, realized like, yeah, this is what I want. Like, I do like business. I want to I want to run my own business, but I don't even know exactly where to start. So business school feels like a good a good place, you know, like a good place to start, yes. learn some things and then go start a business. So that's sort of how I got there. OK, I love to see that. So then when you were at HBS, well, give me some advice. I'm taking I'm sorry, y'all. I'm asking serious questions here mm-hmm. for myself. Mm-hmm. What do you love that you did and what do you wish you did while you were there? Okay, what do I love that I did? I love that I left with, that I really focused on making good friends and left with a really strong friendship group. I love that I did that because they have become another support system for me, my close friends from business school. One thing I don't love that I did was I was president of my section. I don't know if they do this at Wharton. Does Wharton have sections? We do. We have clusters and stuff. Okay. So HBS has sections because, you know, HBS and Wharton are both big schools, right? I think we had, you know, almost a thousand people in our, in our first year, but by contrast, most business schools have like 300, 400, like yeah. maybe up to 500. But HBS and Warden are, are big. So they split you up into these 90 person sections. And each section almost runs like its own little school, right? Because we take all of our classes together, but then we also vote for president and secretary and treasury. It's a whole <laughs> thing. And me being me and the extrovert I am and whatever, I was like, I'm going to run for president. I, I guess I can't say I regret it, but I will say it took some of the fun out of, oh, out of it, right? Because now I'm like respectful responsible for these people like I'm responsible for planning events and making sure everyone everyone's having a good time like I like making sure people are having a good time but 90 people mm-hmm. you can't make 90 people happy okay particularly not 90 Harvard class you know type A's so it just added a level of stress that I don't I wouldn't do again I think I was just so used to I was always the person running something in college right I was always right so I think I was just so used to it that I was like I guess that's what I'm gonna do I don't know that that was a great decision so that's probably something uh, if I had to do it again I I wouldn't do transparently did you take loans out yes yeah and did you did it scare you because I'm scared Mm -hmm. signing that financial aid thing really stressed me out last week you know what It did and it didn't. It did just like looking at the number, right? Like this is how much money I'm going to need. It didn't because everyone was doing it. Yeah. You know, and everyone had done it. And I was like, looking at these other graduates, they're not bankrupt. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, it didn't stress me out that much. Okay, cool. That's helpful to hear. Who should and shouldn't be an entrepreneur in 2023? Ooh. Oh, I hesitate to say anyone shouldn't be if it's like your heart's desire. I don't want to discourage anyone. Or I guess anyone. what characteristics yeah. you know, would, you, would you need? I think the best 
entrepreneurs are extremely scrappy and extremely resilient. So by scrappy, I mean you're able to do a lot with a little. You don't look at the fact that you are missing a bunch of stuff that other companies have and think like, oh, now I can't do it. You look at that and you say, oh, look at what I do have, (laughs) right? Like I have this so I can do that. That's scrappy. I think that is necessary because even the really well-funded startups you know, if you're even Glossier, okay, yeah, they had 10 million. That's that's a good chunk of change. That's not L'Oreal money, uh-uh. right? That's not Maybelline money. So there's still some stuff that even Emily Weiss and her team had to figure out that, you know, they were they had to be scrappy about. Resilient because a lot of stuff is going to go wrong. Yeah. Like a lot of things. It's just going to be things you don't know that you don't know. So an example for us that I love to give was when we, this was right before launch, we were going to launch January 2017. Okay, now it's December 2016. And we had ordered, or maybe it was November, it was near the holidays. We had ordered our lipstick components from China. By the way, all components essentially are made in China. And so the lipstick components had to get to our filler in New Jersey. Then our filler had to fill them. And then we had to launch in January. Okay, so it's time for it to ship. And our component manufacturer reaches out and says, how are you going to ship these components? And we didn't know that it was our responsibility to ship them. Oh. So we were like, what do you mean, how are we going to ship them? They're like, who's your freight forwarder? Mm-hmm. I had never heard the, rare, the words oh. freight forwarder. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what you're, t- I don't know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. What I know is I need these components here in America. Okay. Because, because we're launching in a month yeah. and they were just like, well, you need a freight forwarder. And so first of all, Googling freight forwarder, second of all, looking through all the various freight forwarders, third of all, trying to do all of this with my Chinese manufacturer, with the language barrier by, yeah. and the time zone difference. Okay. It's 12 hour difference. So it's 9 PM. I'm like on the computer. Amanda's on the computer. We're chatting with each other. We're trying to like chat with the factory a mess because we just didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know when we signed, when we like came to this agreement and it said FOB mm-hmm. that that meant they were going to get it to their port in China. We had to get it from that port to ours. Oh my God. We just didn't know that. Yeah. And so that was a disaster we had to get through, yeah. right? And little things like that are going to happen because you don't know what you don't know. So you've got to be resilient. You can't be like, if we had been like, oh, jig is up. The whole thing is like, it's over now. We're never going to be able to get these components. Like, so let's cancel the launch. Then where would we be, right? Mm-hmm. So you just, you've got to be scrappy and you've got to be resilient. And you have to know yourself. Are you really someone who can deal with the fact that you're going to have a fire drill probably every day? There's going to be there's going to be something that goes wrong every day or at least every week. Are you going to be able to deal with that? Like only you know. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I can't answer that question for you. But not everyone can. A hundred percent. I really appreciate that. I feel like even with launching the robes, it's just been like every day there's something new. Yeah. Like you said, you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And it's just something new 24-7. And launching a product is stressful. And dealing with inventory, dealing with sizing in your case. You know, oh, you've got sizing. different sizing. I mean, yeah, it's a lot. It's something. Inventory was probably the hardest thing. I, I think that was the where I was like, I don't know like what I'm doing here. Right. But it's like you just live and you learn. And I feel like what I've learned the most from it is not to take myself too seriously because you, you'll get humbled every day. And, oh, 100%. And <laughs> yes. You'll learn a lot. So yes. it's, it's a very humbling time. experience, entrepreneurship. Yes. Truly. Okay. I know we're getting close to time, so I want to ask the few questions that I like to ask everyone. Okay. But since you're a beauty founder, mm-hmm. I'd love to know what are your thoughts? Are, are there any upcoming like startups? You said you're a business junkie or products or companies that you think are doing a really good job in the beauty industry. Oh, that's a good question. 
The thing is, and I don't know if this is good. It might, in fact, be very bad. The thing is, one thing I had to stop doing pretty early on in Minted was spending a lot of time looking at what competitor brands were doing or other yeah. brands were doing because it just made me anxious. Mm. It just made me feel like, am I keeping up? Like, obviously I still see it. I'm on social media, mm. whatever. I'm friends with other beauty founders, but I don't pay a lot of attention to it because I just have to use my customer base and what I know about them to be my guide in terms of like what we should launch and what we should be doing. If I start looking at, oh, Winky Lux launched this really awesome, you know, flower bomb thing. Should I launch mm -hmm. a flower bomb thing? No, I shouldn't. Yeah. My customer is not that interested in the flower bomb thing, <laughs> right? Like I have a different customer than she does. So I kind of stopped paying attention. So I just, I say that to preface that. I don't know if I'm going to immediately be able to think of something because yeah. I, I do try to like. I like that though. I think keep my blinders important. on. Yeah. yeah. But brands doing cool things in beauty. Oh, I know. Oh my God. We just did a partnership with her. Okay. There's a brand called Parfait. They do wigs and they do like full, like they use AI to make a wig for you, a custom wig for you that like the lace matches your skin tone perfectly. The fit is perfect. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I met the founder, Simone, at another uh, founder event that I that was worth going to. And she told me about her brand. And I looked at her wig. I was like, girl, is that a wig? Because this, you look amazing. Anyway, it's just, it's it, very impressive what they're doing from a technology standpoint. Like you basically, you take a selfie of yours. You take like three or four selfies. They use that to custom make your wig. Then they ship it to you with everything you need. Everything oh you God. need. It's, you know, it's expensive. It's going to cost you a pretty penny, but it is a nice, like a really nice. It's worth way. it. It's worth it. You don't have to dye the knots and no, stuff. No, you don't have to dye. Mm -hmm. And they send you like the, the, the got to be spray, the Ooh. gel, the edge, you know, you know, brush, the everything you need. And it comes in such beautiful packaging. And then uh, the, one of the packaging things, like you scan the QR code and then it shows you the tutorial for how to do it. It's just really smart and exciting and we just did a partnership with them i think we're doing another one with them so that's mm, what i will say i'm obsessed with that wow okay that, that's making me excited okay do you have any books resources podcasts that really have helped you as a founder and as just a person living out, out here books resources or podcasts i mean Honestly, the resource that helped us the most was YouTube because we went to YouTube to learn how to make lipstick and mm -hmm. that's how we got this whole thing started. I feel like you can learn just about anything from YouTube and now these days you can learn anything from TikTok, literally anything. So if you're about to start a business and you're wondering like, how do I build my financial sheet? How do I like reach out to manufacturers? How do I whatever? I guarantee if you put that into either YouTube or TikTok, you're going to get an answer. Yeah. You know, you might have to sort through them. Maybe not every single one of them is going to be the most helpful, but I promise you it's going to help get you started on, on the path and it's going to be free. Yeah. So that's the number one thing I would say. I like that. Okay. So I ask all my guests the same question at the end, just, you know, to be consistent, which is the following. Finish this sentence with something that you want other people, particularly young people to know. You are too smart for. You are too smart to let anyone else dictate your future. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. I, yeah. I might, you know, ask you multiple more questions because <laughs> I feel like you have so much to give. But wow, where can everyone find you? Plug yourself, give us everything that we need to know. Yes, okay. I would love if you follow me on TikTok. 
I am underscore KJ Miller. I would love if you listen to Not Another Business Podcast. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify. And I would love, love, love if you headed over to mintedcosmetics.com to pick up a nude lipstick, a concealer, skin by minted foundation. What's your favorite product brow right pencil. now? Oh my God. My favorite right now is our concealer. I, I think we might be sold out of our top shade, which is CEO. <laughs> um, but it's, it's called Full-Time Brighten Concealer. It is full coverage. It is so moisturized. Rising. It's got such a beautiful ingredient list, and and it's going to be launching in Ulta soon. Ooh, so I can't wait. That's right now my favorite. Oh, love to see it. Okay, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you.